a Podcast One production. Punchy, whacked, power, influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> Kate Jenkins, of course, uh, is well known to you and I, Jane. She's mm. the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, has been since 2016. Uh, before that, she, of course, was Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commissioner. And she's done some extraordinary work, including, of course, running the National Inquiry into Sexual Harassment in the Workplace, which has been a huge undertaking over the last few years. Absolutely. And very timely, given the Me Too movement and the new conversation we're having about this stuff. And I think Kate is just such a great person to kind of take that on and turn it into something actionable and concrete. I can't wait to hear what the results of that review are going to be. But she's also, she's such a character and so passionate about sport. Well, she's a bloody Victorian, I suppose. I was inevitable. Um, but particularly the effect that women's sport is having on women's status in the community generally. Well, yes, I think she's got her own daughter to look at and yeah. see the effect of that. And of course, she was on the Carlton Football Club board, amongst others. So she's an, an incredibly rounded person with some fantastic contribution to make. Absolutely. And a passionate advocate for women. Well, Kate, you have, of course, been leading the National Inquiry into Sexual Harassment in the Workplace. Um, What's changed, if anything? Probably not enough has changed. Um, As Sex Discrimination Commissioner, One of the areas that are covered by the Sex Discrimination Act is sexual harassment. The laws came in in 84. Australia was a real pioneer when we introduced them. And they were introduced with a particular enforcement mechanism, which was people could make complaints. Since 1984, we've had a few big cases. And I grew up in Victoria. So even in the 70s, I remember Deborah Wardley brought a case about sex discrimination. There's a few cases on, you know, dirty calendars and mining cases. But over time, actually, very few complaints get to the Commission. Very few complaints go all the way. Yet, we know in the current conversation of Me Too, and we know from the work that Human Rights Commission does of surveying sexual harassment, that it's a really a still a very common experience for women and now even more so as well for men. So, We're at a moment where it's time that we take stock and think we were trying. I think corporates, I think employers have been trying to make changes. They recognise that sexual harassment's unlawful. They recognise that they're responsible for productive workplaces. But we still have a situation where sexual harassment happens to one in three Australian workers in the last five years. That number isn't what people expect. And so I think when the Me Too hashtag hit after the Harvey Weinstein story, and in Australia it was just as loud. Oh, yeah. People were, I wasn't surprised, but a lot of people were. Mm. A lot of men were very surprised, I think, and it actually has had a really good effect on a lot of them into making them go, oh, my God, I had no idea this was so pervasive, and they're much more conscious. I've just noticed it, like, in my Twitter feed that if someone is harassing me or trolling me, it's often men who'll leap to my defence now. Mm. That's post the Me Too thing. And that was also the case in the workplace where I think it, for many years, was considered, of course, something that we didn't want to see. But I think that idea that it was so prevalent has come as a genuine surprise to a lot of senior yeah, men. Yeah, yeah. And I, 
I think that's right. I think I've had the same conversations, you know, particularly when it first hit. I I remember going to one radio station, the producer, when I came in, he said, I've started talking to my wife. It happened to her. We have dinner parties. It's happened to every woman. He said, and then he said, and I've talked to people at work. They all say yes. And so you could just see he was like, it's everywhere and I couldn't see it, but now I see it. But As part of the inquiry, we've done consultations and one of the things that I've been really noticing is women have really engaged in the consultations. And, you know, I can get corporates and lawyers and HR people engage, but men have really not stepped forward to talk to us. So I've specifically done some, uh, ultimately some broad call-outs and then some specific call-outs and I've had some roundtables of just groups of men, young men and in different industries. And When I have those conversations, I'm really aware of how their knowledge and awareness is so vastly different to women's. And to some degree, this is not surprising, but when I start that conversation, I start with a definition of sexual harassment. And that's where the shock starts from. You sort of say, okay, the legal definition's a bit longer, but it's basically unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature where it's reasonable someone will be offended and it happens at work. That's all it is, and it's to make sure people can come to work and not have unwelcome, offensive sexual conduct directed towards them. So that's really logical. But one of them, the first response was, but I've been doing that, like, a lot. (laughs) And and it was all men, and so I knew if that had been a mixed group, he would not have said that, and I also know that if it had been a mixed group, the women in the room would have wanted to reach across and, you know, absolutely wrap their hands around his neck. But actually, I actually think what is helpful is to understand that their starting point is very different, but the appetite here is to learn. And so while I don't necessarily think on most things you should divide men and women separately, I do think on some of this education that we should start where the people are at. And so those conversations with the men, every time, if I have one conversation I know I can make a huge difference to their understanding and attitude. There's lots of conversations about how scared men are and how it's going to ruin their careers and uh, and I'm not that empathetic about that in that I keep saying think of the careers that never happened because of this Um, but also actually you have a responsibility. You are, so my sense of the men was they're the, Uh, four out of five perpetrators are men, Uh, 25, 26% of victims are men, Um, they're bystanders and they're leaders and often they're the CEO. So they're the managers, the bystanders, the perpetrators and the victims. Actually, they have a, you know, they have a huge interest in understanding this, not getting themselves in trouble and not having to deal with the problems. So I think we're at a turning point. I think Me Too, Reaching Men, is helpful, uh, but then I think we have to go further and I think the inquiry is really about solutions because I think we're now at this moment where I think a social media campaign and journalism has really spotlighted the issue, but that journalism isn't the solution to the issue. Workplaces need to change and systems need to change. It's been um, interesting to see some of the... um, 
conclusions about the Me Too effect in some business publications. There was a recent article out of the US uh, saying, oh, well, you know, if this is the case, you know, men are not going to employ women because they'll be <laughs> concerned about it. And I, Jane and I were just saying, well, actually, if you're being logical about that, you'd stop employing men. Yeah. <laughs> really? Um, <laughs> so right. I think having said that, I think Me Too has been a real moment um, and has continued to to put a fingerprint on a lot of people's conscience in a way that very few social campaigns that we've seen over the, the last few years yeah. have. So it's been fascinating. Can I take you back a little bit? You were, of course, a lawyer for a, a large chunk of your career, weren't you? Was that something that you'd always planned to do? Uh, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't that often the case? Mm. So I grew up in an orchard and uh, no one, you know, my generation's the first generation that finished school and then went to university. Um, At school, I was, you know, a smart kid. And at that point, I guess, if I think about the gender nature, um, I was a good math science student, but boys did engineering and girls didn't. So smart kid, you do medicine or law. And I didn't like blood, I realised, after <laughs> one, you know, field trip to a hospital. <laughs> that, uh, So that's how I ended up in law. But I also loved art. So I could do law and arts. And in my arts, I did maths and, and art, which nobody ever has done, mm. but I hope they do now. Um, and I did law, which at that point, and I'm sure it's the same, was about two contact hours a week, not very much. Um, and then over time, I really just, I did honours in fine arts. I was always going to be an art gallery director, but I had debts. So I worked one year at a law firm to get my clerkship and fell into employment law and got to do discrimination cases because none of the boys wanted to. And I loved that. I loved the people side. And so suddenly I was in a job, which was really practical, really, uh, I mightn't have wanted to be a lawyer, but I absolutely care about fairness and justice. That has been since I think I came out of the womb. So it does make sense that the law feels like, although the law doesn't always deliver justice, as we know, particularly for women sometimes. True. But then again, um, in that particular part of the law, I guess you're looking at a very practical application of it too. So there is that. Um, So when you were growing up, who were your role models? Who were my role models? So I, d- I did grow up um, on on an orchard. It was in Templestowe in Victoria, so with encroaching suburbia. So um, I had really interesting role models in that most of my friends lived in courts. I so wanted to live in court and, you know, be able to ride a bike around a Oh, like a, like a, a, a cul-de-sac kind of thing. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Oh, right. Yeah, <laughs> So I, that's what I, you know, we'd watch Neighbours and imagine being able to, being close to your neighbours and um, having Rosella tomato sauce because we had homemade. Like now I look back <laughs> oh, thinking, yes, what was course. I thinking? <laughs> um, so I lived on this orchard which involved my grandmother lived on the other half of the house, my aunt and uncle lived up the road, my cousins. So the workers were my extended family and Italian fruit pickers from the um, wharves. And so role models or kind of environments, I had two brothers and it was a pretty good life. Um, uh, but particularly my mum did what rural women do, which is absolutely everything. So she brought us up, she picked fruit, she fed all the workers and she also sort of tried to camouflage herself at the tennis club as if she 
wasn't doing all those things because most of those other um, and and Dad really maintained the kind of traditional. You know, he was the farmer, but on reflection, he was always at home. Like I was used to, dad would come in and out and we would go and find him. So I remember when I got into secondary school, one of my friends had a father who worked in advertising, three daughters, and they never saw him. I I could not believe, like we would get up and he was already gone at 7am and then I'd be there for a sleepover and we would go to bed before he had got home. And so I didn't know what my family life was like. But when I got to that point, I realised that mm, I, I, I never understood. I also remember that family, they'd get one Mars bar. It was all daughters, very, you know, and they would divide it into six pieces. He got two and everyone else got one. And, you know. <laughs> that reminds me of the old um, lamb chop. Yeah, the burnt chop. And the mother always took the burnt chop. That's right. It was a self sacrificing (laughs) thing. Well, a virtue. And and it's really small, but how old? I'm, you know, over 50, and I still, what I remember about that is like, that's not fair. Mm. Why would, you know, that wasn't, I mean, who cared about the Mars bar? But it was my sense of, why would, uh, like, everyone's a person? So I've very much grown up with that, you know, everyone's equally. The principle and I did grow up thing. with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, of course, um, it was about six years ago that you were appointed Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commissioner, which is when I think I first met you. Um, and I'm interested, how did that come about? Was that something you'd had your eye on or did someone tap you on the shoulder for that? Probably a combination, combination of that. Yeah. I was at um, at the law firm I was at, at Freehills for 20 years. I worked in an area that was fast growing, so the discrimination law re- was relatively new. The corporates needed help, so I was elevated very quickly to partner because it was a practice area that was really exploding. And you were probably pretty good at it. I'm yeah, just going to throw right. that in there. <laughs> yeah. Of course. And then I established a training company within the business as well as part of thinking corporates need to do more than run their litigation cases. Uh, so over 20 years, and then in the course of that or towards the other end, I was married, I became a stepmother to three kids, I had two kids, so all that was in there some point. So I guess at the point that I changed though, and the kids were still quite young, but I was sort of like, I've been here for 20 years and I wasn't going to be here at all. Remember, you know, my plan was one year. Yeah, where's that art gallery? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, in the art gallery, I joined the board of Heidi Museum of Modern Art. So that was was exactly right. When that happened, I said, at last, I've got an art gallery. Um, So I was at a point in my career where I was like, am I really going to be a law firm partner forever? It just never felt like that's what I should be doing. Um, And so the opportunity came up for the Victorian Human Rights Commissioner role. And when it came up, the reality was, as I had been in the previous two years brainstorming what I would do, I I had about 10 different things. But one of them was a role that's really unique and I had the Victorian Commissioner role and I had the Sex Discrimination Commissioner role. So I feel very, you know, those people who say, tell the universe what you want, um, that I knew these were phenomenal roles. Like I had huge admiration for the people who held them. Uh, And I also think this is a great country 
for these roles. It's a country that while there's tensions and lack of progress, they really support these roles to mm. have have a say and make a difference. So that's sort of, it was sort of unexpected but perfectly timed and definitely something that I wanted to do. And when you made the move from Victorian Human Rights to the Sex Discrimination Commissioner yes. nationally, what was that like? How was that different what was the change of focus like and what did you find out that surprised you? Yeah, that's a great, great question. The main difference is the national and international, uh, both education and influence. Um, And also, obviously, now I am specifically focused on gender equality, which is both about women but LGBTI communities. But the Victorian role covered all grounds and was really well respected in Victoria and in a state that is really quite good on yes, it, human it rights. Yes, it leads Australia really, doesn't yeah. it? So I didn't fully appreciate that until I moved to the national role, that there are some things that Victoria is just going ahead and then the rest of the country sort of looks and says, "That's look, they did it. The sky didn't fall in, let's have a go. So It's taken how many years since Victoria took abortion off the Crimes Act for New South Wales to follow suit? We even are behind Queensland on that. So you're absolutely right, but it can take a few states a bloody long time to get there. Yeah, so Australia on one hand is a really fabulous country with a lot of commonality and then as moving into this role, a lot of diversity. The other thing I would say in moving from that Victorian role to this role, that's been a huge privilege and um, a great thing for me is having done, you know, all the grounds of discrimination. I never look at an issue that I'm dealing with now without thinking of the intersectional impact And I think that training, because you didn't divvy yourself up by gender, by, you know, disability, you weren't. um, So I think our federal system works quite well, but it's really important, all the human rights commissioners, so the disability age, that we all work together and that we all understand that, you know, there's women, but there's older women, younger women, um, you know. and Women of colour. Women have a range of different experiences, um, but also so do men, so that if we don't do that, then we're only going to progress a little bit. Another area, but I know of equal interest to you, is sport and women's sport. And gosh, that's been an interesting thing to watch. The change. Hasn't it? It's, it's been extraordinary. And sometimes when people say, oh, you know, are you optimistic? And you sort of struggle at times. But that's one area I look at and think, gosh, there's been a shift in the mainstream about that. Not long ago, people scoffed at the idea of women paying professional sporting codes. And anyone wanting to watch and it. And anyone wanting to watch them, especially women. Now, What's your take on that? And I know it's not perfect and I hear people saying the AFLW, for example, needs a lot more going on there. But do you find that uplifting? Yes. I think the um, in the work I do, because there's so much that needs to be done, I do focus on workplaces, education and sport. And sport really is a passion that came not just, well, it came because I was Victorian. I don't, uh, the rest of the country I know is sport mad, but in Victoria... It's a religion. That's the language. And I think you'll know I was on the board of Carlton, which 
induces booze in Victoria, but it also gives me a lot of credibility sometimes. You're on safe ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not even sure what it is. But yeah, I, I'll just I love that. smile. <laughs> it's so funny. When, uh, going back to that transition, so the Victorian role, I would go and people would boo me because Kate's on the board of Carlton Boo, and I'm like, they're booing. Mm. And I'd come to Sydney and they'd say, Kate's on the board of Carlton, and they, like you, Jane, would say, I wonder what that is. Yeah. Well, is that the beer company? Is that the company yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, uh, since you sound like you don't know much about AFL, I'm, I'm a sport-free zone, so you can barrack for Carlton. So okay. I'm going to call you a Carlton supporter. Okay, I'll fine. send you. Yeah, that's right. I regard <laughs> you as an opportunity for conversion. Um, so my in Victoria, there was a couple of pieces of work that we were doing. Uh, there was something that particularly hockey in Victoria really took with, which was called Fair Go Sport, which was about being inclusive to gender diverse and sexuality diverse uh, people. That had a huge impact, changed the entire, then they started doing every other type of um, inclusion. And so in that role, what I noticed is uh, there was a moment that I, in my head, say, okay, that's the moment. So what I like about sport is that it's not all, at the moment, it's not all unpicking the disasters, although there is a lot to be done. There's also the positive attitudinal change and uplifting experience of it. So when you do watch, you know, so AFL is the code that I love, but I love all sport, frankly. I was there on that first game and you watch these girls come out, you know, Sarah Hosking just like slams into someone straight away and you suddenly stop all these questions about what will happen to their breasts and are they okay and can they be fit enough? Funny how testicles are so tough. (laughs) (laughs) Not so anyone noticed. (laughs) Um, So so what it's doing is exploding all these preconceived views. Now, the starting point for sport, though, was, uh, unlike other things, that women just weren't allowed to play these sports. So, you know, on the other side, you have to say, well... Why could they not play the sport? There was no law that said they couldn't, but the systems just said, oh, well, um, there is a law that says you can discriminate in sport, however. Uh, In 2015, Michelle Payne won the Melbourne Cup. And again, this is a very Melbourne thing, but um, it's not just a Melbourne thing. And you might recall when she finished, she wrote up and she just said, you know, for those of you who said I couldn't do it, go stuff yourself or I'm not going to get. And I was watching that and I just thought that is, that she's speaking on behalf of every woman ever. Mm -hmm. Like I, haven't we all wanted to say that? When any woman who succeeded in something despite, everyone saying, and this is in the corporate life, in where you all said, I wasn't good enough, you'd had a, you know, I've had a baby, you've got to, you just stay home. And it was, it was a real passion. So at the time, I was interviewed by Sam Lane, who's a journalist, AFL journalist, but also a really smart woman. And she called me and she said, now, what do you think about that? So she wrote an article about what that meant. And so I could, because we'd focused on this list of all the things, all the barriers for women in sport. uh, But she said, have you called racing? Have you called them? And I said, no, but I think I will. So I called the then CEO and just said, could I come down and talk to you about what you're doing? Now, Racing Victoria doesn't employ all the people. They just register. They're responsible for the jockeys. Uh, but at that point in time, they, I said, here's your chance. You've got this amazing woman. You can really, you know, and this is horse racing, like women are light, girls ride horses. You know, here's a sport. It's one of the few sports 
where it isn't, you it's, know. It could be completely equal. It's very. Oh, which is like motorsport as well. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing, which, again, women are very underrepresented in, That's but there's right. no real reason why they should be. No, yes. no dependence on upper body strength. No. Yeah. yeah. So at that, from that moment, I've watched and I think there's been so much change in women's sport, in cricket, in soccer, in football, all codes of all all shapes and sizes of balls, uh, you know, there's been a huge change. It's really interesting to me as someone who is not a sport fan, right, I'm just not interested, but I do see that there is a parallel in the the thing that people love most about sport is often the story of the underdog, the person who has the barriers, who overcomes those barriers to become a champion. Well, if you think about the story of yep. women yep. and what women have been trying to do recently, it's a parallel yep. story. And it's a powerful one, isn't mm, it, in yeah. a country mm-hmm. like this and, and seeing some of the films, documentaries made about Adam Goods. And I, yep. I think, again, oh, yeah. very galvanising yep. mm-hmm. because it's yep. such a cultural cultural touch point for us as a country. But there's something else too. There was a, a, an article, um, a headline that came out. Oh, uh, Debbie Harry's new memoir proves she's not just a pretty blonde in tight pants, which is incredible. And a whole lot of people put up things on Twitter like uh, Marie Curie's biography reveals that she's not just a sexy chick with beakers, you yeah, know. Yeah. And th- that, again, is this underdog where mm. you are defined by one thing, which is whether men are attracted to you or not. And mm. what we are doing is reframing that mm. into no, we're actually looking at the contribution of this person, be it mm. a jockey who can win the Melbourne Cup, um, a footballer who can yeah. uh, be the best all-rounder in both AFL and cricket. I'm sure I'm right there's one who does that. But those that parallel of reframing how we see yes. the woman's contribution. Yeah. Yeah. I can still remember when the netballers, uh, female netballers, all had to dress up and look incredibly sexy to get any kind of sponsorship mm. and there was sort of a mm. calendar. And then had to travel in economy. That's right. And that's all changed. Then we hear Michelle Williams at the um, Emmys talk about thank you for paying me equally. So so I don't think it, I don't want uh it to be recorded that that has all changed. No, because it, oh, hasn't, no, it hasn't all changed. <laughs> so, so the thing that I but but the attitudinal change is a really important, and the community change and the engagement is really important because often when I speak, I go through and the stats are you know which we really helps. So I'm like, okay, we're looking at participation rates. Women have been excluded. We're looking at pay. We're looking at facilities being provided. Um, what sort of um, opportunities for women in governance in you know, coaching roles. We're looking at media reporting, how much, who, um, and how, and, and just respect for women. Mm. So, how, you know, to all of those things, when you look at them, I can produce some really alarming stats on, you know, women are reported in 13% of the time, there is one woman in the top 100 paid, all, the, all this sort of stuff. So it's changing. What's good is it's changing pretty quickly, so mm. that's exciting. Uh, it's changing attitudes pretty quickly. And I, and I do wonder, Jane, whether if women had been involved in sport, whether you mightn't be a I have no interest in sport person. It's possibly true. Mm. I always saw it as an entirely male yeah. zone yeah. and I saw it I saw it too as explicitly saying to me, this is not your space, we mm. don't want you. And my response to that was fine, which I don't is, care. Which is right. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was fact, the message yeah. I got from yeah. all the sports I watched yeah, exactly. was that you were allowed to be there shaking the champagne bottle and letting it spill. How? 
How, how have we not noticed what that symbolises, I often wonder to myself. We're blind. Um, you know, in a bikini, but otherwise you weren't wanted. Mm. So, yes, I think mm. I think that's a fair point. Mm. Do you know when you're, Kate, when you're working with um, uh, groups of blokes and, and you mentioned before around um, workplace harassment and so on, and, of course, with male champions of change groups and so on, um, I wonder if you ever see, it's, it's a bit hard to say, I suppose, but if you see that change, that shift in attitudes that comes from maybe sport and so on coming through, or do men who are still in power in workplaces kind of see it as a bit different? You know, we're not talking about the same things here. Women have all the opportunities. It's the, kind of their own, up to them. Um, as someone who wrote a book called Stop Fixing Women, you know my thesis. Yeah. But is that shifting? I mean, are we seeing a change of emphasis? Men's understanding is increasing in sophistication. And I think, uh, you know, and you mentioned in your book, so the Male Champions of Change initiative established by my predecessor, Liz Broderick, really has engaged male CEOs. And I think it's not simply saying, come on, men, you've got the answer. It's almost the opposite, is saying, I don't think you truly understand what the problem is and you have the power to change it. White Ribbon is a really important movement. I'm quite focusing myself on the next step. I do think it's really important we engage that um, positive middle ground. So we've done a bit of talking to the top and those conversations are always about a business case or a, you'll be more productive. But when I did the work with Victoria Police, it was really clear that, well, you know, serving the community better was definitely a top of mind for the Chief Commissioner. But if you're in charge of a local station and you've got two women and they both go off on maternity leave and no one replaces them, then you don't think you're going to serve the community better. So the conversations that I've noticed have started happening in, in a very good way or, or the need is that Average men who are not in the CEO roles um, and they're in my circle of friends are kind of starting to say, now, why is it my fault because Eurydice Dixon got murdered in a park? And that this conversation about what is men's role, drawing those threads together, we haven't done that well. Women completely know what the conversation is, um, but there's a group of men who want to help, who, you know, have daughters as we hear and they constantly say, what can I do? But actually it's about engaging and educating them on why is you know, sexual harassment and violence against women, how does that, is that rooted from gender equality? Because one of the things that I've noticed even with some of the CEOs, so there's been in Australia really good momentum about violence and about family violence. So I think there's a real passion about, um, you know, some would say not enough, but we're reading, it's been reported well now, these brutal murders and aside from the murders, just the injuries and the violence against women in the home. And I think that some leaders and some men are very passionate about that. But when you say, well, actually, see how you're passionate about not hurting women. Well, could you be equally passionate about a woman being elevated to the CEO of your organisation? And, you know, I don't ask them that because I know they're not going to say well, no, but there is a real difference between protecting women and elevating women. It's very true. And yeah. also perhaps thinking about whether the women in your organisation who are going on part-time work or taking time out to care for elderly parents or children, what's happening to their super while that's going on? What's going to happen to them when they get old? People just simply don't think about it. And while I think you're right that corporates are taking that on board and business in general, 
there is such a lack of leadership in this area by government. You know, we've just had, is it four women killed in a week? Yeah. And we've heard nothing, not a word from our nation's leader or anyone in our federal parliament has spoken up about this. There were a few uh, horrible, horrific uh, one-punch hits in um, Sydney and we brought in lockout laws and changed the, you know, we took action as a community. We do a lot of awareness raising, we do a lot of talking, but actually we don't really do and we've closed the refuges that women who were, you know, we tell women you should leave and then we give them nowhere to go when they do. And we don't seem to be able to see that this is actually, mm. we're creating the problem. Mm. But but the other thing about getting that message across to the corporate world, or indeed the world of employment, um, I think that is a tricky one. And like you, I mm. having observed the area closely, I think there's a lot more to be done there. And of course, the figures that came out um, in the last few months from Chief Executive Women show that the number of women in CEO roles of listed companies has actually gone backwards. And there are very few women in line management roles, which we know is the pathway through to those top jobs. So it's clear that while the conversation has extended um, and it's involving men, it's got a lot further. It's as if we can talk about all these things, but we can't actually do anything about all these things. Yeah. And I I think... I agree 100% with this conversation. I think some of the things that Australia does well or the opportunities are, um, if I look and having taken on this role, it is the intersection of the community sector and the NGO, non-government organisations, plus the government, plus the corporates. They're kind of mutually reinforcing or mutually kind of pressuring. So when I have been to other countries, I mean, there's some other countries where governments, so earlier this year I um, was invited to visit Brazil and in Brazil four women a day die Mm. due to family violence. It's heartbreaking. And so what's happened particularly in Victoria with police, with change of practice, that's really helpful in Mm. countries like that. Um, But then when I was there, they really, beyond that, they were really interested in what we have in the private sector because government wasn't prioritising some of the other things. I think some of the way this role works well, our, um, under Julie Bishop and now Minister Payne, our international programs really focus on women and on gender equality and sharing. And so I do watch and I think there's something helpful about us leaving the country and saying this is what we do well, but this is where we need to improve uh, because, I mean, I'm no expert on this, but there is some occasions where I think our politics are very much no one's going to tell us what to do kind of politics. Mm. Um, And so it is a bit of everyone needs to get in and we all need to be taking initiatives and the collective. I think sport, that's what's happened with that. It's everything sort of happened at once and there is money coming from government into sporting facilities and, you know, requirements for women on boards. And so actually if sort of one starts moving, the other does move. So I'm not quite as cynical about government, but how it all works is a bit of a, 
elegant dance. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I also think one of the things that really made a big difference to sport was, and I actually worked on the advertising campaign for it, was the um, AFL Women's first game, which was so packed out with people and really indicated to the world that there is an audience that wants yes. to watch women play sport and therefore there's money to be made. Because I think that one of the things, you know, you can do things out of the goodness of your heart, but when you do things because they make a profit... That's a hell of an incentive. Yeah, and I think at that point there were 50 women's teams and now there's more than a 1,000 across the country and my daughter, who's 10, is in her second season of AFL 100% because she saw those women play. So I do agree that they're uh, the sport, the momentum um, despite everyone saying no one wants to pay and there's, you know, there is a financial driver behind why we're getting there. And I get that. I was a long-term corporate law firm partner and I used that for 20 years as the reason why, you know, I used to have real clarity on where my corporate clients were why they would act. And it was never because it was the right thing to do. It was always because of the business case, the war for talent, the customers, the productivity, whatever it might be. But it is raised really um, reasonably now to say, well, we keep having to produce, and I think you've written about this, Catherine, the business case for having women in, what's the business case for having the majority of men? Like we always talk about. We don't talk about that one. And even the pay gap, like we talk about the pay gap being, you know, women get paid 86% of men. Why don't we talk about men get paid 120%? And, you know, there's always this sense of the men have got the right amount and the women just have to be brought up because they're behind. And there's a point where you're sort of like, why is it all about the men are good? Um, Can we justify more women? There's a really interesting kind of still, I think, ingrained view that women shouldn't be greedy and shouldn't ask for too much. I always remember when Lisa Wilkinson wanted to get the same amount of money as Carl Stefanovic on um, the Today Show and Channel 9, I think, came out and said, oh, but, but you know, if we give her that money, that's 10 producers' jobs we're losing. I thought, isn't it funny how it's only when you pay women $2 million that producers can't get jobs, but the men can earn this money and doesn't have any effect on anyone else's job. Isn't that miraculous? Somebody should do a PhD. Um, we have this attitude that Lisa was being greedy and she should have put other people's jobs ahead and we still have this moral yep. view of women should make way for others, mm. which we don't have for men. And we don't, we'd, we're really good at talking about the facts, the stats, mm. all that kind of stuff. What we find harder is to talk about those ingrained ancient attitudes about women as the sacrifices. And also the irony of that, that she was negotiating hard, which is what we tell women right. to do. Right. And then we punish and she's <laughs> penalised for it. Um, Kate, just thinking um, ahead, there's your daughter um, playing uh, rugby. I mean, it's, it's sorry, AFL. AFL. Oh, my goodness. What a new thing to say. Just to be and clear, soccer. and gymnastic and, gymnastic and swimming. So just to be clear. But the point about it is... Things can change relatively fast. I am not discounting the amount of work that has gone into getting those women's teams and those codes up. Totally get that. But in a fairly short period of time, attitudes did change to that. I think sometimes we do ourselves a disservice by constantly saying it's going to take another 100 years, 150. 
the mainstream can shift. We saw that a bit with same-sex marriage. We've seen it with other areas. So are We you... see it in the backlash. The reason oh, that, that, that there's yeah. such a vociferous backlash is they can see yes. that things are changing and, too. And things can shift, mm. um, which is which is a good thing. Um, what are you thinking about your, I, I mean, I hate to say it sounds ponderous, but your legacy uh, in this role? Because it is an incredibly important mm. role. You've done a fantastic job. What would you like to be sort of remembered for in this position? Um I guess I don't give that a whole lot of thought right now. I've got my head down um, trying to. A lot of what I do is both knowing all the things that need to be done and then taking the opportunities that seem the most ready to blossom. And so in lots of ways, I think this is, your question is making me think about that. Absolutely, the Sexual Harassment National Inquiry that I'm doing at the moment, we are going to come out with a report. I feel like this is once in a generation opportunity to change this and there is no question that in terms of my grit and determination, um, those recommendations will be strong and they will recognise that 35 years later, our laws and our workplaces can be better than they are now. And I, I think I'm only one player, but I am continuing to advocate in all sport and across the board. I think all of those issues that apply across for women in all walks of life are evident in sport. Your comment on pay, so the negotiations on pay and those early women who are pioneers, they're being told they should be grateful that they're allowed mm. to play. And you can imagine... Um, Sports administrators, not just talking about women, are starting to understand the language of human rights and equality. I think Craig Foster's been a really great advocate. But Mm. actually there's a lot of people in sport now who speak human rights. So Kevin Roberts, who's the CEO of Cricket, developed their pay model off the back of UN international human rights principles. So that was several years ago and no one knew it and quietly he was consulting to understand how do you get to equality. So I think those two things are high on my priority list. I actually don't know what my legacy will be, but I do feel privileged to be in this role and I am just absolutely in awe of the number of amazing people across this country, including both of you, but so many people in quiet ways are making a big difference and government actually mostly, whichever colour, um, likes the idea that Australia comes up with solutions and can fix things. Thanks so much, Kate. Thank you. Thank you. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and me, Catherine Fox, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Crown, theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search Women with Clout on Apple Podcasts.